Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We all know that obesity is a national epidemic, but what if it's being caused by foods that are addictive? Does that mean insurance would have to cover treatments and these new anti-obesity drugs? Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So we've discussed how effective these new uh, drugs like Ozempic are uh, in controlling obesity. There's now some controversy, though, over whether Medicare, for example, should cover these. You know, the most recent study published about this was an analysis on what would be the financial impact on Medicare, Medicare Part D, which is the prescription benefit. What would be the financial impact on it if the government were to start covering the cost of these new weight loss drugs? And they all work by a uh, common mechanism where it essentially tells the brain that you're full, it slows emptying of your stomach when you do eat, and so people have been very successful with weight loss. But the downside to them is that they're extraordinarily expensive. A year's worth of the medication is in the ballpark of $14,000. So it's quite costly. It turns out that 42% of adults in the United States who are 60 years and older have obesity. And so if there was just a 10% uptake in that group at the cost of these annual drugs, which I said is about $14,000, it would cost an additional $27 billion a year for Medicare, according to this paper. And what would happen if 100% of the seniors who needed these drugs decided to take them? it would overwhelm the uh, Medicare Part D system, and yes, it would be broke. Right, which would be bad. But typically the prices of these drugs drops as you manufacture them in larger quantities. And also, isn't it true that if you can prevent obesity, many fewer people would get sick from other diseases that are already covered by Medicare? There are tremendous health benefits from uh, losing weight. We know that obesity is related to so many other things, hypertension. high cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, all these things which have a lot of medical costs associated with them as it is. So hopefully there would be a trade-off that you're prescribing these medications, people are losing weight, their diabetes is improving, their blood pressure is improving, they're having less heart disease, they're having less metabolic syndrome. And as a result, they're needing less medical care that turns out to be much more expensive anyway. Well, at the same time, uh, you pointed out that there was just a study published in uh, the journal Addiction, which finds that highly processed foods are so addictive that they could be classified as addictive substances, implying that uh, another approach to this would be for the government to control certain foods that were considered to be too addictive. Yeah, this was an interesting study because it it was a paper that came out of University of Michigan by a a researcher there who's very focused on um, addictive behavior. She looked at the 1988 Surgeon General's report that qualified tobacco products as being addictive based on their ability to cause highly controlled or compulsive use. Secondly, that they cause psychoactive effects, their mood altering. And three, they reinforce behavior. She was able to say, well, look, we can look at highly processed foods, foods that are high in calorie, high in sugar, high in fat, with little nutritional value. And if you apply 
these same criteria, ultimately you can say that highly processed foods are also addictive substances. And that if we were to qualify highly processed foods as addictive substances, then we could actually treat people differently if they had an addiction to this type of food and that may ultimately result in better therapies long term. So do we find that people get diagnosed with a food addiction and then they qualify for these drugs that are effective at losing weight? Mm. Given what a huge problem uh, uh, obesity is, And given that we apparently have some research indicating that there is truly an addictive quality to certain types of highly processed foods, uh, when it when it comes down to, you know, rescuing us from bankruptcy at some point, wouldn't you have to say that some foods are just too dangerous to sell? I mean, I think that's a true statement. I don't know that we'll ever get to the point that we're able to say, hey, these foods can't be on the market. I mean, when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, you know, he charged a tax for drinking sugared beverages. Yes. There was lots of yelling and screaming and complaining about that. The other challenge that's going to come up, and this is an interesting political challenge to all of this, some people are actually opposed to these drugs for weight loss in principle because they feel that it's causing us to focus again on body image Mm. rather than just accepting people for who they are. But in my opinion, as a physician, and that's short-sighted, there are health consequences to being obese, and they're related to so many different diseases, practically every disease we can think of, frankly, that I don't think you can just bring in the body image issue relative to weight loss when the health implications are so significant. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And joining us now from the CBS Broadcast Center in New York City, business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Jill, tell me, I I heard Janet Yellen say over the weekend that there was not going to be a bailout of the Silicon Valley Bank, and yet all the depositors are going to get their money this morning, so it sounds like a bailout. What's going on? Well, I think that there's two distinctions. One is we're going to make depositors whole, but we're not going to bail out the bank itself. The shareholders, the management, is basically done, meaning they have no value in their stock. And that's really different than 2008 when we actually saw the companies themselves get bailed out so that they were we actually had many shareholders who were actually able to recoup all of their money after the financial crisis. And that was really based on the largesse of the U.S. government. So it's important to note that we saw we saw depositors saved. However, what we did not see was the bailout of the shareholders and the company's management as well. Okay, so does that then threaten any kind of contagion, given that a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money, even if it's not the depositors? Well, I mean, I think that the contagion part has been limited for two reasons. One is that yesterday at 6.15 Eastern time, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury actually announced a measure that said for accounts with more than $250,000, accounts where you don't have FDIC coverage, that the government would make you whole. And the second thing that that was announced was that there would be a facility to help banks that come under these liquidity crises, meaning the banks have a bunch of bonds that are on their balance sheets. 
the bonds have value, but the value has gone down as interest rates have gone up. And what the Fed is doing is saying, we know that you have a paper loss. We don't want you to take that paper loss. So we'll take your bonds as collateral. We'll give you cash now, and that can help you meet your depositor needs. Okay, the depositors are protected because all bank accounts, their FDIC insured, are protected to a quarter of a million dollars. So uh, that system obviously works. But after after the two thousand eight catastrophe, I thought we put in regulations that was that was that were supposed to protect stuff like this. You had stress tests, et cetera. What happened? Well, those regulations are absolutely in place for the biggest banks. But something very interesting happened in about 2015 or so. The small to medium-sized banks out there in the universe, led by the president of Silicon Valley Bank, actually lobbied the federal government to have those regulations reduced. Their argument was, hey, we're not the big guys. We're not going to cause systemic risk. So we should have lighter regulations. And that was basically banks that had uh, deposits up to about $250 billion. Well, guess what? That actually went into effect. In 2018, the Trump administration reduced the regulations for the small to medium-sized banks. And what's really kind of interesting about that is, Maybe those regulations might have kept Silicon Valley banks uh-huh. afloat had they had to keep more money on hand, had they had to actually have more stress tests and more regulation and oversight. But now they are a victim of their own lobbying efforts. And I have to say that I think that the, that, that really did contribute to some of the problems here. Another example of be careful what you wish for. So far, I haven't heard you accuse uh, Silicon Valley Bank of going under because it was too immersed in diversity, equity, and inclusion, as uh, Ron DeSantis alleged. Are you absolutely sure that diversity had nothing to do with the collapse of this bank? Yeah, um, well, actually, I would say that their lack of diversification ah. is actually was the problem. Maybe okay? that's what he so meant. The fact that they... That's what he meant. He meant that they focused on tech startups, They that they uh, essentially were um, unfortunately hyper-focused on growth and were hyper-focused on making sure that they delivered shareholder value. So all of that said, um, maybe that's what he meant. Uh, for a moment, I thought he was delivering a cheap political shot, but thank you for fixing that. Good. CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And it's time for today's edition of Crime and Punishment, although this time uh, we're going to talk about a different kind of sentence. These are cases where people have been essentially sentenced to a normal life. Let's go to Casey McNurthy from the county prosecutor's office. And uh, Casey, you've, you've talked to us before about drug court. And now we're going to get an introduction to what actually goes on there. Tell us about it. Yeah. So some of the best days, truly the best days in the King County Courthouse are the days where there's a, a drug court graduation. And that happened last Thursday. And it was just it was just such a cool moment. And it always is. I wish that more people could be there just to see it in person. So drug court was started back in 1994. It's not something new. And it was started by Republican Norm Mailing. And back when he started it with a Superior Court judge, King County was the 12th jurisdiction in the country to have a drug court. And now there's more than 3,000 across the U.S. Back then, there there were a lot of drug possession cases that went there. And now, since the Blake decision, it's 
low-level crime that is fueled by drug addiction. So what it's not is if you point a gun in somebody's face, that's not a crime that's going to go to drug court. But if you're doing a vehicle prowl or a low-level theft and it's clear that the motivation was your drug addiction, you know, after a, a, an independent review, folks can look at that and say, this is the right candidate for drug court. And my understanding, and this is not just like getting out of the speeding ticket. A lot of people who don't know about drug court think of it like that, but it's actually much more intense. It's a minimum 10-month program, and most people stay in it for over a year. And there's weekly check-ins and analyses uh, to make sure that people are following the terms and and conditions that are are set forth. And at the end of that process, uh, where they have this great support network, that's when their felonies are dismissed after the completion of it. Marco Collins, who we all know from his time at the end and is now on KEXP, talked about his own struggles with addiction. He was the guest speaker um, and gave a great speech because he's so relatable. They told me when I got sober that your life would change at three years. You're going to see it. You got to struggle through those first three years. And uh, that wasn't the case for me. Getting clean, getting sober is easy staying clean and staying sober and having some semblance of sanity um, is not easy. We're, we're still losing people to addiction and alcoholism all these years later. Um, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. What makes it so special is that you've got prosecutors, defense attorneys and judges and support staff and everybody who routinely is opposing each other are all in agreement about how proud they are of these graduates. And uh, to hear people talk about their own journey is is really, really powerful. Here's a a woman named Roxy, who was one of the graduates on Thursday. Hi, I'm Roxy. Um, I'm a lot of things. Today, I'm sober. 2-22-22. So, like, this isn't my first go-around. The mental health part is the part that I was missing. What a process. It, I got a whole team of people, right? It, it takes a whole recipe to make this recovery thing happen. If you don't have all the tools you need for the job, it's, it's not going to work. I tried it. One thing that you'll notice is that each of the graduates talk about their sober date. And that's also something that Marco talked about of how important that date is because it's not mandated by drug court that you set a certain date. You, you, you've got to follow conditions. But the date of when people become sober is a date that they choose. And that's why it's so powerful for the people who continue it. Really? So that's a, so when you're in court, the, the judge asks you, by what date do you want to be clean and sober? Not necessarily that. No, it's, it's in, in terms of drug court, uh, you've got to make the commitment not to use drugs, not to use alcohol. And there are urine analysis to make sure that you follow through on that. Oh. But the date of, of when you give up alcohol is, or when you stop using drugs is a, a day that you choose. And so it's, it's, it's mandatory in the program, but usually it's, it's a date that people pick before they get into it. And what is Andy Rubio's story? So Andy had a, a great story and, and he, was, he was there with a great support group. He was somebody who talked about wanting to better his own life. 
A lot's happened since my sober date, August 7th, 2020. It was that day I decided to change my life. Even going to jail, I decided then to weed out the negativity because I kept seeing a lot of people coming in and out over and over again. And I was like, that's not going to be me. I'm going to change my life. And um, it's been great. Got a car in my name, got my license, got full coverage insurance, got a great job, a beautiful girlfriend and two loving dogs, a great friend who's always been there for me since day one, who holds me accountable. Life is good. Life is good. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's really, really neat. And another one of the graduates who spoke was... uh, Gregory Scott, and he was somebody who was in the middle of his addiction in downtown Seattle and then later got a job as a downtown Seattle ambassador. I've also come along with this program. I have a car. I have insurance. I have a driver's license. I have medical and dental, and I have a relationship with my mother and my sister. I'm so so sad that my father didn't get to see this period in my life where I addressed my drug and alcohol issue. I quit high school. I quit playing football, I quit on my family, I quit a bunch of jobs, and what I'm proud of today is I quit using drugs and alcohol. 30 months ago today, is this is my birthday, I had 30 months clean and sober today. It is good to hear success stories like this. Now tell me, what percentage of these cases end up with, with this kind of success, Casey? So it really depends on how you look at the metric. If you, if you look at, at people who, who count their time in drug court and then the time afterwards uh it's 84 percent sometimes it's it's lower if you look at the time the two or three years after drug court so but still the key to it is if you look at that compared to recidivism if you go just to the king county jail it's it's much more successful and that's the key to it anytime you have a program whether it's jail or drug diversion court like this, you're, you're going to have people just by human nature who don't succeed at it. But with with this program and with the support network that people have, the success rate is much, much higher. But now tell me this, is the success of drug court because of, of the stick, because of the threat that if you if you screw up, you go back to jail? For some people, it is. It's really unique to each person. Some people say it is. And other people say it was just that's when they decided to change. I think what's consistent, though, regardless of what people's reasons are, is you can do this with a network of of support. Some people are lucky that they have that in their own lives from the start, but some people don't. And when you look around, what you see consistently is you've got people who – either in these words or other words are saying we love you you can do this you can make it through this program and we we're here for you even if you fall and having that network of support is what makes the difference casey mcnurthy from the king county prosecutor's office casey thanks very much you bet thanks dave Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird and Company. An army widow promised her husband just hours before he died that she would get an education no matter how long it took. And years later, she's made good on that promise and is set to graduate college next month. CBS's Steve Hartman has their story. It's karaoke night inside the Sigma Kappa Sorority House at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And here, amongst all the dancing queens in their teens, we found one stationary sister in her 40s. Tiffany Eckert, America's most unlikely sorority sister. In so many more ways than one. I still miss you every day. Tiffany's husband, Andy Eckert, 
died in the Iraq war. This is his wedding ring. Years later, I did a story on their son, Miles, the little boy who found a $20 bill in a Cracker Barrel parking lot and then gave it away to an airman he saw in the restaurant. Because he was a soldier, and soldiers remind me of my dad. Miles' tribute to his father deeply touched the nation. But there was another story here, one that has gone untold till now. Yeah, just a few hours before my husband was killed, he called home from Iraq and he said, no matter how long it took, I had to get an education. And he made me promise that I would. And then he told me, I love you more than anything in this world. I'll call you tomorrow. It was the last promise she ever made to him and the only one she hadn't kept. Tiffany says she barely made it through high school and now had little kids to raise on her own. College was out of the question. But those kids grew up. So three years ago, she decided to not only enroll, but to immerse herself in the full college experience. You can't focus on the negative because you'll always be in the pit. It's easier to claw your way up when you're reaching for the sunshine. That's how you get out of the hole. You know, she's helped me so much and she's inspired me a lot. And I know she's inspired a lot of the other girls in the chapter. There's definitely not one person she hasn't made an impact on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Including, Tiffany hopes, the most important person. I go back to that last phone call. And uh, I think he's really, really proud of me. She graduates next month. Love you. Promise kept. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Bowling Green, Ohio. 7.49 now from the Gia Nursley Show, which starts at 9. Here is G. Scott. So did you, you So you went to see everything everywhere all at once over the weekend? I mean, yeah, in, in, in my house, I went to see it. In your house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to an actual movie theater. What? Okay, okay, yeah. okay. You fancy? Yeah. You fancy? Yeah, that's um, So what did you think? Uh, at first, I said, oh, this is performance art. I'm not going to get into this. And, uh, and actually, a couple people left. It was just too much for them. Oh. And, and then I realized, I figured out what it was. Should I give it away? What it oh, was yeah. is... Got to say spoiler alert, though. Give people a chance. Parents and what they go through with, with being a yeah. parent and kids. Yeah. And well, it's a, but but with, it, was, it was the woulda, coulda, shoulda thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, it's a wonderful life, except uh, y- using the new theory of the multiverse, where all of us have many personalities in different dimensions oh. that can you know string out into space, which is, I think, a lot of garbage. But it made for an interesting uh, uh, theatrical device, I thought. With the Bluetooth earpiece. <laughs> With the Bluetooth earpiece, yes. I've never seen it, so I have no idea what you guys are talking about, but it's so, fun to hear it. Uh, so, uh, so you liked it? I ended up liking it, yes. So I we, didn't think I was going to. I was worried it was not going to be a happy ending, but since it was a happy ending, I liked it. Okay. Yeah. So then, since you're saying, you said I ended up liking it. Yes. So, that's like sitting down at somebody's dinner table, and somebody says, oh, Dave, how'd you like it? Well, I ended up liking it. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that doesn't go too far. Was that and is that movie, in your opinion, mm-hmm. worthy of best picture? Well, <laughs> see, award shows leave me cold because you're comparing apples and oranges. It was, it was a completely different approach to what I think is a very common theme, the difficulty of just being a family, right, and getting along with people. Sure. Um, I, I think... Um, 
I admired it because they took on this idea, uh, that, that this trap that people get into. What if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? And I think the whole the confusion was, frankly, the point. What I came away with was, if you start living your life that way, you will end up having the kind of uh, thought salad that was thrown at you in that movie. Mm-hmm. And therefore, don't do that. How many tangs? How, <laughs> hmm. I'd probably give it uh, three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to James this morning, and uh, James, Brother James said he has seen it twice. Yes. Oh. And, and, and I would assume that if you do watch, watch this twice, that you would probably come away like, okay, yeah, that, you know, it got better after the second time, or maybe you've read a book the second time. You know how it is when yeah. you do things the second time. Well, you see, I can't stand doing things a second time. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded every time I do my laundry right now, because right now I got to run the dryer twice oh. and it's making me mad. So it's letting me know that. I need a new dryer. Yeah. My point, you can get the lint, you my point to stand, out of there. Yeah. if it takes two times to watch something, mm, mm. I don't know about that. Or you wanted to watch it again because there's so much there. You want to pick up all of the different aspects of it. Do you? Okay, here's the other big question of the Oscars. Was Angela Bassett robbed of an Oscar for Jamie Lee Curtis getting it? Ooh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Did you see Wakanda Forever, though? uh, Yes, 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 yes. I mean... I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I really do. Seriously, I've been a fan for years, still a, and currently a fan. Um, what she did in this movie was, eh, like, I wouldn't have never thought that she'd be Oscar worthy uh, for their yeah. part. However, the little, I don't know what the little, what the daughter's name was. She was incredible. In the everything. Oh, everywhere. my yeah. goodness. She, okay. now she, if, if they said, and she was up against Angela Bassett, and they said, okay, she's the winner. I, then I'd be like, well, I still think Angela Bassett should win. Okay. But I'd have more of a like, okay, because she was really good. Mm-hmm. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't even the best one in that movie. Very small part. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe she really won. Did you see I, some fashions that you liked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael B. Jordan and them was just really clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, really had to take. I took some pictures and some screenshots of those suits, and I love the way they're doing their ties now. The old school. I don't know how to tie my tie like that yet, so I got to get to YouTube and learn how to do it. So yeah, it was some definitely good fashion. Uh, look. I thought the Oscars were successful yeah, last night, show. right? Yeah. I mean, it was a good show. Jimmy Kimmel was great too. Yeah, but it's almost—it's almost like president, you know, of the United States, right? Yeah, the more right? boring like, you are, the better you are. <laughs> the, the, the better you are, and especially especially when you compare it to the year before. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. See, I like your coat, by the way. I can see my reflection in the uh, padding. Ah, thanks, yeah, Brad. Very nice. We are learning more now about that disturbing story from Friday: how a suspected stalker killed a Redmond podcaster and her husband. Joining us in the studio live now to follow up is Car News Radio's Sam Campbell. So, Sam, now the dust has settled from this initial crime scene. What do we know now? Dave, we're getting a clearer picture from authorities on how this online friendship turned into something dark and obsessive. Uh, police told me Friday morning they were aware of the suspected stalker, this long-haul trucker from Texas, as they had been following this case for months. Uh, Jill Green with the department says it started because the man found the woman's podcast. He started asking her questions. They developed kind of a friendship until he just began barraging her with text messages and emails. Later that day, police hold a press conference outside the home and Chief Daryl Lowe clarifies they met on an audio chat room app called Clubhouse. 
The suspect and victim met via a podcast type of chat app platform that was specifically for Farsi-speaking individuals uh, seeking employment in the tech industry. Police say the woman reported he once called her a hundred times in one day. Wow. And his behavior led to her filing a request for a protection order from the man. The Seattle Times obtained a copy of that protection order, which details months of harassment and threats from the man, including saying he would show up to her house, set it on fire, and only stop contacting her if he was dead. The Times reports he was blocked from contacting her eventually, and then he began contacting the woman's husband. Uh, so... There were some difficulties, police told me, in actually serving the protection order against the man because of his job. Here's Jill Green again with the department. We're not able to serve the restraining order in person because of his profession as a trucker. And he was on the move. Uh, So at some point, uh, Green says that police request a warrant for his phone records, indicating that they believe there was, you know, a possible threat to this woman. Investigators felt like it really warranted actively investigating it and getting all the information, getting a warrant to get his phone records. And they even went to the family and gave them tips on trying to keep safe. I'm trying to independently sort through the timeline in these court documents, Dave, and I have yet to obtain them myself, but I will be bringing that uh, extra info later. But that takes us to that morning on Friday. Police get the call just before 2 in the morning that a man had broken in through a window at their Redmond home. The 911 caller was none other than the woman's mother who was staying with them in another bedroom. She had an altercation with the suspect but was able to escape to a neighbor's house where she called 911. Back inside the home, police say the man fires four shots at the woman, her husband, and then himself. And Green tells me officers arrive to find the woman and the suspected stalker dead, a suspected stalker dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And the husband's still breathing. They tried to save him, but they couldn't. And so the whole case brings up concerns over online safety as, as well as what kind of safety do protection orders actually serve people. That was one of the topics of the questions that reporters asked uh, Chief at the press conference later that morning. I do not want to create a false sense of security just because a restraining order or a protective order is obtained that that is uh, some type of shield. Deirdre Bowen, a Seattle University law professor and expert in these orders, actually spoke with our colleague, reporter Kate Stone, and she says sometimes these situations can actually escalate after someone is served with that paper. In some ways, getting the legal system more involved can at least at least initially put the individual in more danger. And again, we don't know how this long haul trucker uh, allegedly showed up from Texas or from wherever he was into Washington state. We don't know when he got here. But I do know that when I was at the scene, as I was leaving and handing off the coverage to our uh, colleague, Nicole Jennings, I spotted police towing a red pickup truck from Oregon uh, with Oregon plates. And I had called actually Kate on the desk and said, you know, we should look into this. And, and police yeah. did clarify later that they believe that that vehicle is how the suspect showed up uh, to the neighborhood. And worth noting that he, he had parked it about a couple blocks away. Oh, so would they have been legally allowed to disarm him based on this protection order that she got? That's a great question, Dave. And to be honest, I don't know. Of course, they couldn't couldn't find find him, him, but I'm just I'm just wondering if this is one of those cases where if they could have found him, they could have said, uh, hand over all your weapons. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I will be talking with data privacy experts later uh, to ask how people can stay safe online. Sam Campbell. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Dave. 
To Olympia we go to get the latest on the I-5 bridge over the Columbia and what it will take to replace it. And we'll find out why the legislature is involved somehow in toiletries at hotels. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Dave. Yes, I think it's a little interesting. Uh, I'm bringing up the I-5 bridge crossing the Columbia between Oregon and Washington because of... What the governor said, it, it caused me to go down, I won't say a rabbit hole, but it made me uh, interested in finding what's really going on down there. So last week, Governor Inslee held a press conference, and he and he was asked about how did his meeting go with the new governor of Oregon, Tina Kotek. And the first thing he brought up was the I-5 bridge, and this is what he said about it. It was very productive. I thought we made progress on a path forward on the bridge, and she gave me her thoughts about what she thought was the most realis- realistic path through the, the support of the Oregon legislature that I thought were realistic, and she evinced a real, I think, uh, interest in getting this job done. Well, it it, it kind of sounded like there was some hesitation there and some doubt, and so I started looking into What's happening with those with that bridge? And apparently, you know, you have political differences between this Washington State and Oregon. They want different things, and and kind of like remember all the talk about when the West Seattle Bridge was failing, and there was mm-hmm. alternatives like a tunnel, and you know right. maybe we'll build another high rise or another drawbridge. That's what's going on right now with the I five bridge, and you know we're talking billions of dollars with this one. This is a you know that bridge is a hundred and five years old. <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know earthquake and take it out so that's what they're afraid of and so um so both states want to get a replacement bridge but why does the governor sound like if there's going to be a lot to overcome i had put in a billion dollars into my budget and that's difficult because there were some delays of some things that we otherwise would want to do that you know frankly are politically difficult but i wanted to show a commitment to oregon to get this job done i think she appreciated that so dave what there's another new wrinkle that happened right after that press conference that was on Thursday that the Coast Guard demanded that the interstate bridge replacement program study a drawbridge option uh, because mm-hmm. they're afraid that the the cur- what the parameter is that they want to have a bridge that's 116 feet high uh, uh, above the water kind of like what the west seattle bridge looks like but it wouldn't look like that it's more like the ship canal bridge yeah. kind of a fixed span but the coast guard's saying you know you need something that provides 178 feet of clearance so how much would well, that cost well that's going to cost another 500 million dollars if they can if they add a drawbridge portion to this. This project is already billed at about five billion right now, and there's different, and they're just thinking different ways. One, maybe a new bridge just for traffic that would be really high, and then you have a drawbridge version that just does freight traffic. Another whole nother bridge. So there's a lot of options. So it's not an easy replacement. And I think what the governor was alluding to is, okay, how much are you going to put up, Oregon, and how much yeah. are we going to put up? We've already put up a billion. Isn't there a so, railroad bridge there too? Say that again. Yeah, there is. It's a railroad bridge, uh, Matt. No, but it's further to the west. It's a much right. smaller span to the to the west of Vancouver. And I remember I went down there for the initial press conference of this at the Red Lion. Uh, there, that hotel no longer exists. That tells you <laughs> how long ago I was for the kickoff of this. And one of the biggest problems is wa- Oregon wants to put light rail across it. Right. They yeah. want to extend the light rail over. And Washington is like, we don't want to pay for your light rail into our s- state. And then you add that to a hundred. 170 foot, somebody the eight foot height requirement. How is that going to work? So yeah. yeah, there's a lot of squabbling that has kept this thing 
off the back burner for years now. You, I mean, people build bridges a lot faster than this, but the two states can't get together. Yeah, well, the, the Coast Guard is the new wrinkle in all this because they asked for this 170 foot tall or some sort of clearance hmm. way back when, and people said, uh, well, now they made it a requirement. You have to study it. Huh. So, so, so that tunnel, was the new wrinkle last week. Is a tunnel feasible? Just as much as it was when the West Seattle Bridge was being talked about. I mean, I uh, it's it, you you ask your engineer of choice, and they'll yeah. say yes or no. So let's talk about uh, housing. Yeah, well, this is a quick thing that uh, the governor in that same conference, he basically just in part of his four billion dollar plan. Now he's even more convinced that the only solution to solve the housing sector, affordable housing, is needed is a public sector solution. Here's what he said. We'll only be successful if we face the music. And what I mean by that is you can't nickel and dime this problem. This is not a problem you can solve on the cheap. This will take billions of dollars of investment and the private market will not make it. The private market will not make the investments that will give people affordable housing in the state of Washington. So we have to go big so people can go home. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, basically, he's just more and more talking about it's a public sector solution and the private side will not solve this, which means the taxpayers have to build affordable housing. So I thought that was important thing he said. No change the blood alcohol level. Yeah, they, they, I just wanted to say, I can skip the sound on this, but I just want to point out that the, the lot of, lot of support for lowering the blood alcohol from 0.08 to 0.05 and joining Utah is the only state to do that. Uh, there was a lot of support, just didn't have the votes. And the governor said that he would have signed that bill if it were to pass. And then you talked about uh, the plastics. So I yes. thought this was interesting. So the the bill, there's a bill that is basically trying to you know improve, um, reduce single-use plastics so they don't go to our landfills. Yes. And, you know, all of us use those three-ounce tubes of soap and <laughs> shampoo and conditioner that we get at the hotels. Yeah. Well, this bill would ban all those. Um, you know, everything has to be more than six ounces. Uh, yeah, the, the, so Samantha Lauterbach of the Washington Hospitality Association says that the hotels, and there's 112,000 hotel rooms in our state, you know, they like the idea of s- removing single-use plastics, but the industry should get a tax break for doing so. With a cost around 100 $150 for tamper-proof dispenser and installation of this could cost our industry upwards of $17.4 million. Because of that, we're asking for some B&O tax reprieve so we can help pay for this. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. Getting a tax break to install dispensers in a hotel room. Yeah. Uh, um, a lot of them have been doing that already, so I'm Yes, yes, surprised. a lot of them are, but, but the, the odd thing I thought about was you know, so you're a traveler. You got to go through TSA. You can't have any six ounce shampoos. You want the three ounce ones, so they'll throw them out, right? Yeah. Uh, right. So, you, so TSA requires one thing. The state's now requiring something else. Um, and yet, you know, you can go to the dollar store and buy these. Do people still really shampoos. have to bring shampoo with them on trips? You you can't get them when you Chris does. <laughs> I, I you know what I do, Dave, because I'm not a rich guy like you and go to the Marriott. You know, the big old Motel Sixes. Yeah, for no me, doubt. So. Yeah, you. Can me i buy out the stuff at the albertson's travel section every time i go yeah yeah so so some of us you know uh we bring our own soap bring our own razor i see well you deserve Part a tax deduction for that yeah i get a tax yeah. and you know also one good thing is that the, every any water fountain they build in the future mm-hmm. now must yep. have a refill station ah. attached to that that's well, part of this bill all right matt markovich thank you matt you're welcome dave 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.